Hey friends, my name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. This episode is with Matt Rosado. Matt is a professional skydiver and wingsuiter. Wingsuiting is a world that I knew very little about, but after this conversation, now I know more, and you will too. Hey, if you like this podcast, give it a rating on iTunes, share it with a friend, or if you want to be a superhero, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and donate to the podcast. I just started a Patreon account, and if you give $1 a month to the podcast, you will be entered into a monthly raffle where I give away Patagonia gear, I give away Sector 9 skateboards, and I give away all kinds of awesome stuff that you will own and love for life. And thank you, everyone who has been reaching out, giving me feedback on this podcast. I am listening, and it makes me feel good to hear from you. So reach out. All right. Without further ado, let's bring on Matt Rosado, the real-life Batman. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Whoa. So what's up, man? I want to talk about wingsuiting. Okay. Um, where was the last place you went to go wingsuit? Um, we'll give it a fictitious name so I don't piss anyone off that listens sure. to this. Yeah. We'll call it Morocco. So Okay, so we went to Morocco. Morocco. See that? Mor- Mor- Morocco. Morocco. <laughs> exactly. I'm doing that thing with my hands. Yeah. All right, so you went to Morocco. Yeah, so it's a place, uh, first time for me going. Uh, I did a few different trips there recently. But um, it's pretty inaccessible hiking-wise. Um, luckily, I have a friend that uh, just recently bought a helicopter. And uh, he decides to go out there and do trips through the winter to stay current. That way, when summer comes around, we can go to Europe and jump. He's not really wasting the time getting current there. And uh, it's semi-legal. So, like a lot of things in base jumping in the States, there's gr- a lot of gray areas. But, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, if you could imagine, kind of Moab, Utah-esque look, like a uh, very red rock. Um, a lot, kind of like a small version of the Grand Canyon, very narrow, but like 22 to 2,600 foot walls on either side. So, no really, um, there's some small opportunities to like fly along the wall and stuff like that but more or less it's like a camping trip you go out with a helicopter you take all your gear set up uh, basically a place to pack your parachute and uh, make sure you have food and water and you just run laps all day long the helicopter comes picks you up in the bottom and brings you back out and uh, we we're doing like four jumps a day Oh, so it is semi-legal out there, so you can have a, a helicopter. Obviously, in places that are super illegal, the guys have to hike up in the middle of the night and be more stealthy. But where you were, um, Morocco doesn't have uh, it doesn't have a strict enforcement. Well, basically, the it's BLM land, Bureau of Land Management. So it's a there's no law saying that you can't, but the bottom of the canyon is considered a wilderness area. So 
actually landing the helicopter in the bottom to pick us up is the illegal part of that. Gotcha. But um, we're landing in an area where we're not leaving any fr- uh, footprint, and um, it's not really, it's the desert. It's in the middle of nowhere. So we're really not bothering anyone, so. Gotcha. It goes. Um, and will you have a friend who drives the helicopter, or is it a, a random person who you contact in the area and hire? So um, I have a friend who owns the helicopter who is a helicopter pilot, but he is also a base jumper wingsuit pilot and that's what he's going out there to do so usually he will find another helicopter pilot to fly with him out there so he might fly the chopper out there but once he gets out there he's jumping the other pilots flying and how big are the crews most times that you're traveling with um it depends on what style of base jumping you're doing uh building a bridge legal illegal for that particular area um, we did a couple one day trips that were just three or four, four, uh, three or four people. That way it's, um, like organizing a one day trip is much easier with that many people. When we do two day trips up to like nine. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that logistically, if you get more than four people, it just turns into a whole nother animal. Yes. It's it's like when you're like, oh, I'm having a few people over for dinner. And then we're just like, oh, we're throwing a party now. I didn't expect that to happen. But exactly. there's more people. And then all of a sudden, like the ninth guy is some kid who you don't really trust to make good decisions. So having that small little crew is really important. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So um, they had a couple instances out there where that exact situation happened, which was guy comes out there who doesn't necessarily jump all the time doesn't necessarily have the experience but i don't i don't actually know like how he got out there why they let him come but he had a few close calls and he's trying to be a little more uh, a little more selective on the people that come out there um, now because of that so with a big group of people it's usually people from all over that he trusts that he's jumped with before that he brings out there basically gotcha and then um, you are jumping in the early mornings most times, right? Because the wind is most light. Yeah, the wind's usually really good in the mornings. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's all forecasted pretty much before we even go because we have to fly uh, quite far from where we start, a couple hours. So we don't want to go out there. It's a lot of money and fuel and the helicopter and all that sort of stuff. So. Um, yeah, we're usually jumping in the morning. When we go out there with a the helicopter, we could get four jumps in within roughly like four hours. So if we're there at, say, 9 o'clock, we're pretty much done before the wind starts to pick up. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot like surfing beach breaks. A lot of beach breaks in the world are only good in the morning. Yeah. And then by noon, they blow out because the wave's ruined. But you're showing up even earlier. You're, you want to be at the top of the mountain as the sun is coming up. Exactly, yeah. And out there, it's really pretty to be there when that happens because it's, uh, like I said, kind of a Moab-style look. So when the sun rises and hits the walls, that's some of the most beautiful experiences you'll have out there. You yeah. Know, you're in the middle of nowhere with just your buddies, no one for miles, and you get to see the sunrise come up in the helicopter, land on this beautiful 2,600-foot canyon, and then jump off of it. And then fly. And then fly. At sunrise. Yeah, it's sick. And then basically as the sun comes over, the way the walls face, usually we do one on one side, and then we transition to the other side uh, of the canyon because the sun switches. So we're constantly getting the sun on the wall, which gives us uh, good exits or helps us with our exits, and it's also super pretty. 
why does it help you with your exits? So, yeah, so for anyone listening that doesn't know, an exit is basically the the moment you leave the cliff for about the first three seconds. So if you imagine if you were a cliff diver or anything like that and you didn't know what you're doing, you jump off a cliff and your goal is to do like a one and a half, enter the water on your head. Well, if you don't judge that momentum correctly, you're going to belly flop, back flop, something like that. In a wingsuit, that's deadly, so... You want to really dial in your exit. So the way you push, um, the moment you leave, you're not flying. It takes three or four seconds before that wingsuit fills up with air and gives you that ability to start flying. So you're free falling for the first few and you're positioning your back and your arms so that you can arc off of the wall at the type of direction and speed that you're hoping for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so and there's... They're getting into it now with uh, trigonometry, with lasers and all this sort of GPS that they're using to dial these in because in Europe it's very easy to find a, a sheer wall that allows four or five seconds of vertical, which is still, a, that's a big wall. That's, say, 500 feet of a completely 90-degree face. So that's really hard to find in the States. So now they're trying to jump off stuff that's only got like a 200 foot face to it so if you're pushing off at the correct angle you'll start flying right away even though the suit's not necessarily inflated it's allowing you to still gently move away from the cliff you know just like a just like any arc right you know but it's more dangerous to be jumping from a lower cliff because you have less time to recover on the initial initial exit exactly whoa and what exactly, like, walk me through those first few seconds. I'm sure your adrenaline is going through the roof, so it's hard to really talk about it. But what are you thinking about for those first couple seconds? So uh, I think it's different with everyone in the community, how they calm themselves or how they feel. Me, I'm super scared of heights. So uh, a lot of people think, uh, you know, what you do for a living and all this sort of stuff, that's unnatural, but it's not. Most people I know are super scared on the edge. So basically, it's just a checklist, like anything serious you would take in. Aviation especially has given us kind of a checklist. So my gear is packed well. I've taken care of that. Um, I'm going to make sure my handle for where I open the parachute, because that's the most important part, is that you can jump off and open the parachute. Um, My handle's basically in the uh, correct position. My rig's closed properly. My wingsuit is completely zipped up. I'm all strapped in. And then for me, it's just more of a countdown of more of kind of accepting the situation, facing it, and giving myself some long, deep breaths to calm, slow my heart rate down. And then it's a nice symmetrical push. So basically, I want to point my head like the top of my head at the horizon and push as hard as I can in that direction. And that's going to help me have a good exit. And basically that's how Wait, I go through it. Push your head as hard to the horizon. So, so you jump off head first. Yeah. Right. So you jump off head first and then you arc your neck back. So you're basically looking at the sunrise up. Is it, is it not, not necessarily. It's more like if you think like the crown of your head, the tip of your head. Yes. It, you're going to basically lean over 
and you're going to drive that position towards the horizon. So it's not necessarily like diving. It's more like a belly flop. If you were going to belly flop into the water, it's more like that. You're pushing in that direction, and then the suit will start to inflate eventually, and you start moving. Gotcha. But a lot of uh, breathing, calming yourself down, and just getting in that moment, and then it's just kind of all business. It's super focused, um, you know, uh, really your heartbeat trying to slow everything down and, and going for it. And then uh, is it a lot safer once you catch that initial um, lift and then you're flying? Yes. Do most of the accidents happen on that initial three to four seconds? Um, yes and no. A big, a big portion do. Yes. Okay. When it comes to wingsuits, because you're basically, uh, your freedom of movement is restricted from the suit. It's kind of like being in a small straight jacket. You know, you're zipped up. You can't really move your arms and, and put them up above your head. Yeah. You can't give the eye eye captain Ex- when you're in a wingsuit. Exactly. Yeah. The arms only come up to about, yeah, like, uh, not even 90 degrees on the shoulder. Yeah. So it's really... That's one of the coolest experiences about base jumping is once you leave. So once you leave, it, there's nothing. It's not like jumping out of an airplane. There's no, there's no wind for the first couple seconds. It's complete silence. Like utter silence, utter commitment, and you're just falling. And a lot of times, especially out there, you're jumping, the sun's beating on you. You'll see your shadow on the wall. So you're getting this visual of you in a suit, your shadow, just 10 feet behind you and you start to move away from the wall. You feel everything inflate and that's when it gets fun. It's like, I've got this. It's on. Let's go. Dude, you're like looking at yourself. You see a shadow. You're like, I'm fucking Batman right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that sometimes. Damn, dude. That, oh, that sounds so fun. Yes. It sounds so frightening, but so fun. And then you're flying and then you're making these small adjustments, skimming along cliffs, how fast are you going? Uh, it depends. Uh, the steeper, uh, in general, the steeper that you fly. So if you think about it being on an angle, the steeper you fly, the faster you go. And you're dealing with three-dimensional space. So you have a vertical speed and you have a horizontal speed. But you can transition uh, the vertical into horizontal. So you're not eyeballing your landing. A lot of times when you're at the top of this cliff, you can't even see your landing. So what kind of equations are you doing beforehand to make sure that you can make it to your landing zone? So that's um, that's getting to be more and more uh, scientific as I go through the sport, as it, it continues to evolve. But basically for me, it would start with um, going to the landing, visiting it, and uh, seeing any hazards, you know, telephone lines. In Switzerland, there's a lot of cows. Like, you don't want to land in someone's backyard that you're going to piss off. You know, Switzerland's like, it's heaven for us. It's actually legal out there, and we can do it. So we're checking the landing to make sure we have a safe place to land. So making sure there's no obstructions or anything. Then, as far as judging your glide, you know, you should know, from previous skydiving training, um, how good of glide you can get. What's what's the max performance you can glide this suit? How far can you go? Um, so that gives you an idea. A, a really good glide these days is about three to one glide ratio. So for every one foot you fall, you can go three feet forward. 
So, um, and that changes depending on your energy and how you manage it. But basically, I'm looking at a topographical map of a mountain, and I'm judging just by the way the topo's set up. You can judge your glide ratio. Okay, here's my landing area. What's the distance to it? If I fly not straight to it, not beeline to it, but actually follow this mountain down, what's the actual topography, you know, that's going to allow it? So um, a good rule of thumb when you're jumping things, if you're going to fly close to the terrain, um, you want to fly about half your performance. So if you know you can get a 3 to 1 sustained in your suit, you're going to fly lines at like a 1.6 to 1. So it's just a steeper a steeper line you're going to fly. And, and just general stuff like that, um, wind conditions, um, forecasting, how long the hike's going to take, provisions... Uh, logistics because a lot of times where you land is on the complete other side of a 14,000 foot mountain so you need a car there some stages some stages you can just hike to where you're staying or camping um, so you're going through a lot of preparation to make sure that you do the jump safely and gotcha um, and then in the spots, and if there's, I don't want you to give away any secrets for spots that you're going where you're not allowed to jump. Like, well, but well, most times you'll have someone who will just pick you up right at the bottom, and then you guys will just do one jump. Uh, yeah. So, for instance, uh, national parks. If you're jumping in those, um, especially some in the states, it's really hectic. Uh, for base jumpers, you have to be very careful when you do it and very respectful. That's something that um, we're trying to get better at. But basically, yeah, national parks, I would, you're in a park. So there's not someone really that can just come get you and you can get out of there. Like a building jump in Las Vegas, for instance. Uh, yes, you're going to have a driver that basically stops exactly where you are, picks you up and you go. Or you land next to your car and go. In a national park, you'd want to stash your stuff and continue to pretend you're a hiker and get out of there basically wow but you jump off of buildings in vegas yeah it's it's been done whoa yeah <laughs> i mean i don't again like i want to obviously conceal all identities um uh, dude but that's so badass it's like so like fun. like you just jump off of a, a building and then are you like over the strip in vegas or is it like more of those those buildings on the outside how does that work so an experience that i've had um was was pretty amazing so it starts with the reconnaissance so you're basically like your own little james bond or your own little thief or, or whatever you want to, your little burglar. Man on wire. <laughs> exactly that's climb sort of the tim towers so you have to get in there so that's part of the fun Okay, how many security guards are there? Because a lot of the buildings in Vegas that were jumped, um, usually it's better to do it under construction than a finished building. It's a lot easier accessibility and stuff like that. So you're mapping out where the security guards are. So usually they're big complexes. So I know he goes from here to here at this time. So he's going to be gone from this corner. Okay, well, where do we enter the buildings? These are big structures. One we jumped in Las Vegas was 67 stories, and it had a five-story parking garage that was over a half acre you know huge and um so you have to navigate your way through there meanwhile not getting detected vegas got very clever with uh, motion sensors and the staircases so you're trying to 
Yeah, and there's just so much more involved. And then you need to jump and completely completely clear your head and do this thing correctly. Yeah. So, so it seems like going to a place like Switzerland, Switzerland where they allow it is so much more relaxing in a way. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and you get your, uh, if you're looking for an intense, you know, in the moment experience, you can get it in different ways um, out there as you can jumping off a building in the States. But it's a lot of fun. Like these uh, these buildings, you're going and seeing views that not many people get to see. You're going up a building. We went through one. I mean, this is a plush condominium style, 64 stories sitting on the boulevard, on Las Vegas Boulevard that was being built at the time. So we actually got to sneak all the way up through it, you know, get past some security guards, walked literally feet behind him, you know, just around the corner of the staircase. Your buddy makes it and he's giving you the call. Okay, all right, it's clear. You're going through, trying not to make any noise. Yeah, and then you, uh, you're getting up there, and then, um, okay, in this instance, the one of the coolest parts was they had locked the top door. So you get to the top floor. We had jumped it once before, and the door's locked. So how are you going to get out? Well, it was being built, so there was a small sliver in a space. I'm a small guy. So I got to take my rig off, and I got to scale the edge of a 64, 67-story building out around to the platform to the roof, and then come around and unlock the door for my buddies. And then you strap on all your gear, walk out to the edge. You can look out to your right and see the stratosphere. It's nighttime. You're literally watching cars go by on the Vegas Strip, and you're like, okay, here we go. Go off. The building's like solid sheet blue glass super pretty lit up enough to where you can see yourself in the reflection if you do like a gainer off the building can see yourself in the building keep going take a little four second delay or something like that open your parachute fly over the strip over las vegas strip land in like the hilton grand vacations parking lot Wait, your buddies are right behind you. You're just instant like a train, just boom, boom, boom. Everyone's open, flies over the landing area, if everything goes good, and then get in the car and bolt. And it's such a cool experience. Wow, that sounds like so much fun. You're Batman. <laughs> um, that's radical, man. So I can understand why it's illegal to do it over Las Vegas Strip. Me too. Um why is it illegal in most other places of the world, though? Because it's so cool to watch. You'd think that certain national parks would allow it in certain areas. Like, how how did that all come about? Like, when did wingsuiting start? When did it become illegal? And what's the state of it now? Okay, well, base jumping's been a, around a lot longer than wingsuit base jumping. So, as far as... Um, base jumping be illegal they really don't care if you're wearing a suit or not and i think a lot of that stems from for one instance um it was kind of founded in yosemite and for a long time it was actually regulated permitted so you could get a permit to actually go and and base jump this place and there's a few documentaries out there about it if anyone wants to check them out um sunshine superman is a really good one and um, it kind of explains um, how that process came about. But basically, a lot of people that got into the sport, they just trashed the place. They just they didn't pick up after themselves. 
They didn't really treat the mountain with respect. It was all new. You know, they came from a skydiving background, which isn't a really, like, environmentally conscious background. Right. You have rock climbers there that are much closer closer to, like, the surfing community in terms of that, like, dirtbag, environmental, hippie culture. Um, but, yeah, like, motocross and skydiving and a lot of those land sports also have their own vibe which is like i drink monster energy drinks and do gainers off of big shit yes, yes exactly <laughs> you, have, you have rock climbers exactly like, you know they're like bouldering and doing pull-ups and like, on the slack line <laughs> yeah exactly so so i can see so there was tension between the was there tension between the climbing community and the base jumpers or was it more I think it was Just, more the Rangers. Right. Um, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the sport at this time. There's a little bit of documentation out there about it. But from what I understand is they were permitted for a while. They pushed their boundaries to where they were doing it so much. And <clears throat> basically they they didn't make it illegal, but they put a damper on things. Um and they had a protest jump where a lady actually went in in front of a bunch of people with cameras. And that was, I think, the final straw for them to be like, hey, you know, we don't want you jumping off this cliff while someone's hiking the trail at the bottom and some little kid has to see this, you know. So I get their point of view. Um, was that the was that the one where there was the protest and they were all filming and, exactly. and someone died? Exactly. Yeah. Were you there? No, I wasn't there. This okay. was a long time ago. Okay. Long time ago. But um, yeah, basically, you know, that's kind of what happened there. And uh, just recently um, in Chamonix, which it's been legal forever, uh, there's a six-month ban going on right now for wingsuit jumping there because they had a wingsuiter who couldn't find his um, parachute handle to open his parachute and flew into a chalet um, and died in Chamonix. And they've had a few of those, a uh, few of those deaths happen that way. So, you know, we get their point of view. It, it in my opinion, it's not all base jumpers' opinion, but um, it needs to be regulated to some extent. Gotcha. Uh, what do you think is would be the solution? Well, you're not going to keep people from dying, right? Like, that's just the facts of it. You're jumping off a cliff. We're humans. We make mistakes. And sometimes just weird stuff happens. Yeah. So one is a conscious, like, shift, I think, that America needs that, like, Europe's always had. Europe treats you like a grown-up. You go out there and you jump with French base jumpers, they don't baby you. They don't say, we're going to hike this trail at your pace. We're going to go here. Um, we're going to tell you how to do everything. No, you're on your own. You're a grown-up. You know, you're in this sport. You understand the consequences. You need to come prepared. Um, to make this happen and uh, to not hurt yourself or die uh, trying to do it. And America is really like super safety conscious, just, oh, we need to keep you from hurting yourselves, you know. But um, there's some people that have made really good comments, like uh, in one place in Switzerland where it's legal to jump there, um, one of the main rescue guys, helicopter pilots, um, was explaining, look, we have people, more people dying skiing and hiking than we do base jumping and wingsuiting, so we can't tell them no. We let all these other sports happen. But uh, America somehow has kind of 
it's it's lacked on that part. Right. But base jumping is a sport, though, where the reason the deaths are numbered is because there aren't as many people doing it as there are people skiing. Like, if base jumping got as big as skiing, there would be a lot more deaths. But it it still is something that's so extreme that I don't think it would ever get to that sport. It's not like you're going to have families of four being like, we're going to go do some weekend wingsuiting. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's ever going to get there. You have to be a, a very good base jumper and obviously skydiver to attempt wingsuiting, correct? Yeah, exactly. And uh, you need to be proficient in the mountains uh, and uh, a decent climber. Uh, to A lot of these places you're going, you know, you have to climb to get to them. You're trying to look for a vertical face of a cliff on a mountain. Usually those things aren't the most forgiving places. Right. There, it's not all half dome. Exactly. Where there's like one really nice hike up one side to a sheer cliff. Exactly. Wow. Um, so how did you get into this? Uh, for me... Uh, Obviously it started with skydiving. Actually it started with indoor skydiving for me. So... Um, I moved to Las Vegas. Uh, I grew up in Kentucky, and uh, I moved to Las Vegas to open a business out there that had nothing skydiving related at all. And uh, my old business partner had been a skydiver, and he, you know, kept pushing my buttons about doing it. I was too scared of heights; didn't want to do it. And um, how old were you at this time? I was like twenty-one. Yeah, twenty-one years old. Okay. And how old are you now? Thirty-three. Thirty-three. Yeah. So you started skydiving at twenty-one. Yes. Yeah, pretty much 21. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so for me, I came out there. I just happenstance. Girlfriend at the time brings me a ticket. Oh, here's indoor skydiving. Um, let's go have fun and try this out. And I walked in. I met all these amazing people, just great people, and uh, hated it the first time I did it. And this is before you'd ever gone skydiving. Yes. First thing I ever did was go to an indoor skydiving tunnel. So I went in, hated it, was terrible at it, was super difficult, and uh, didn't go back for a while. So that's one of the wind tunnels that you jump in and there's so much air going up that it feels like skydiving. Yes, it's just simulated free fall. Um, This tunnel, basically you walk into it, it's a big old airplane DC-3 prop. So it's a really big propeller, probably 10 foot in diameter, and it produces wind up to about 120 miles an hour. And basically, you're floating on that column of air learning how to control your body. Yeah. So it started with me there. I learned how to control my body. That gave me a little more comfort with skydiving because there's many different parts and it's complex. But um, once I got comfortable enough, I had people that were there that were like, hey, you would really love uh, outdoor skydiving. You should get into it. And we had some friends there at the time that were um, doing outdoor as well. And I just happened to go out one day, do a tandem. I was like, whoa, that's too much for me. So tandem skydiving, if no one knows, you're strapped to an instructor who basically takes you on this ride for you. You don't have to do anything. Just go along for the ride, which you've Did, done. I have. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was a blast. Um, and how – so then – but you hated it. You are over it. Yeah, I was so over what, it. So, okay. I was over it, scared to death the whole time. And it's like, it's too much. So – then I just basically went through that whole process of going back to the wind tunnel. That I really enjoyed. I felt comfortable in. I started to get okay at it. So um, I was like, I'll give it another shot, you know, try it out again. 
Went, tried it out again, was like, oh, I felt a little more relaxed, a little more aware of my surroundings. Did you have to go with someone your second time too? Yeah. Okay. I chose to actually. Gotcha. I could have I could have went by myself. Well, with your own parachute and instructor jumps out with you, he's just not attached to you. Um, I could have started that, but I chose not to because I was too scared. Gotcha. And then um, I did one more right after that, very next day. Had a blast. Was uh, felt way more comfortable. The guy let me control the parachute, uh, explained some things to me, and I just decided to do my AFF, which is accelerated free fall program for anyone who doesn't know. And then no one knows. <laughs> There's like two people listening that knew that. Uh so, all right, I'm just trying to get all these things in order. So, hated it, started getting it, getting good at it. Does getting good at it mean that you're controlling your body better? Exactly. Basically, you have better um, posture and poses, and then you learn that you can tweak your hand a little bit, and then you start doing spins, and then that's when it gets really fun. Yes, you're just getting the muscle memory dialed in. So if I want to turn right, the it's just natural. It's not that you have to think about it at that point. Like putting yourself in the body position that's going to move you. Um, just like with surfing or anything. Okay, I need to lean on my back foot and my heel side to do a cutback or something like that. Yeah. So all that becomes natural eventually, just muscle memory. So once you get to that point, you start to get comfortable just like in anything else. You get the muscle memory dialed in. You get more comfortable. You're not thinking about what's going on as much. And then when I started skydiving, I already had that ability. So the free fall for me was easy. That was the easy part. Now all I had to worry about was malfunctions when I opened the parachute. How do I deal with those? And landing the parachute in the proper place, which gives it a lot less to worry about. Yeah. So I just slowly became became more comfortable with uh, doing it. With the equipment, you have to learn to trust <laughs> yeah. nylon and nylon and rope, basically, to... Have you, you have you always been into extreme shit? Kind of, sort of. Um, yeah, I'd have to say. Yeah, I, I bought a street bike when I was like 16. That was my first vehicle to high school, and I taught myself how to ride it off the dealership lot. So I've always kind of not been too adverse to taking risk, and I'm trying to improve that, get better at not taking such... Have uh, you always been into speed sports? Yes. Yes. Sports where you're going to go really fast. Yeah, exactly. Cars, motorcycles, um, skating in some instances, skateboarding. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, you had a, a, a car company, right? Or was like a, it was like a soup-up yeah, company? Yeah, basically. We souped up cars, drag raced them professionally, and uh, did some rally racing. And, um, yeah, but basically going fast. That's what I love to do. Okay. Yeah. And... Was there any skydiving community where you grew up? No. No, I grew up in basically uh, West Virginia, Kentucky border. So Appalachian Mountains, Moonshine, uh, Rednecks, Hillbillies. Um, everything was very impoverished except for a small part of town. Um, so everything was not very tangible for me. So I didn't really have these aspirations when I was younger. Was it a mining town? Yes, coal mining. Coal mining. Uh, that was probably the biggest, you know, where people made their money. Blue collar and white collar was through coal. Wow. Those are, um, they are strange parts of America. 
because we they're the ener- the energy centers of America, whether it be coal in West Virginia or whether it be oil from Louisiana. It's always um, a, a unique feeling going into a place where pretty much everyone does the same or similar thing. Yeah, it's exactly the way Kentucky is where I was at. It was very, very straightforward, like... Um, yeah, it was all energy sector work, all blue collar work. If you wanted to make any money or anything like that, that's what you went into. Um, and I guess the the town, I haven't been back in a very long time, but I guess it's gotten a little bigger now and it's a little more diverse. Um, but back then it was very uh, coal oriented. So did you want to get out of there as soon as you could or why didn't you become a coal miner, basically? Well, um, I took a... I, I, I basically, yeah, I never felt like I really fit in there, ever. Like, I loved sports. I loved all sports when I grew up, you know. Anything from rollerblades, skateboarding, BMX, also basketball, soccer, and football. Uh, We didn't have a soccer team back then. We actually got it started. We didn't have a skate park. We actually got it started. You know, there was a small group of people that really liked to do the things that weren't considered cool or popular there. And, um... Yeah, it was just completely different environment, and I didn't really feel like I just never felt like I belonged there. So as soon as I could, I wanted to leave. What was cool and popular? Cool and popular there was football, basketball, and that's it. Like football, basketball, and somehow anyone who had money was the man. You is, know. That, is that like varsity blues style? Like quarterback exactly gets the pretty girl. Spot on. Like. like- it, Exact to a T. That was my varsity blues style. Exactly. So, I never, you know, I never, never fit in. The only, the only part that I fit in with was maybe like riding dirt bikes and four wheelers and stuff like that in the mountains or enjoying parts of the mountains. But it was that was a small part. Like in high school, that was a real small part. You know. So as soon as I could leave, I was ready to go. Um, you know what's funny is that. Growing up in Santa Cruz, um, it's kind of flipped. Like, the surfers and skaters were always the cool kids. And then the, like, the girls that would do cheerleader and that kind of thing, it was almost, like, laughed at. Like, it was, it was a, I I mean, I don't want to say it was laughed at completely, but it was just like, oh, like, that's something that people on the other side of the country do like we don't take that seriously here yeah i've I've heard that about california and it blows my mind because we were hated like yeah no one liked anyone who rode a skateboard like i got lucky kind of because i did both sports but the people who only skated or rollerbladed they were not liked at all wow so it's funny and i've heard that about california like the people who skate and stuff like that were the cool kids or snowboarded were the cool kids and it's like oh I should, I totally, it's, it's like California. captain of the surf surf team, not captain of the football team. Yeah. Um. Wow, man, what a wild spot to to come from, and you haven't been back. No, haven't been back since I left. And um, does family still live there? Or yeah, I have a mom that's there. Uh, I have a dad in Florida. I don't really know, but um, yeah, basically it's just my mom back in Kentucky. Does um, she know that you uh? wingsuit yeah she does now it it. i was probably i was a professional skydiver before she ever knew i even skydived whoa yeah. how long did it take you to become a professional skydiver 
Um, that was, uh, I'd say three years. Yeah, I put about three years into the sport before I started doing it for money. Okay. And how did you start making money at it? Um, for me, it started as uh, when I had the business we talked about earlier in Las Vegas. The, the soup up. Soup up business, exactly. Um, I didn't want to run a company anymore. I was over it. I didn't want to spend my life trying to make this business work. I was like, I just want to work for someone. So I, I got out of that business and uh, started packing uh, parachutes. And this, so I had, I had already started learning to skydive as I was doing the business. So as, it, as we walked away from it, I started skydiving and getting into that. Um, getting into that. So I started packing parachutes. So you make like $10 per pack job. So I went from making a decent amount of money to nothing. Just, okay, I'm going to put whatever into this sport. And uh, that's how I started. So I started packing parachutes. You can, there's a lot of different ways to make money in skydiving, but it started that way. And then I did some camera work, which is where you jump out and film people and you sell them the footage. And then after that, it was uh, tandem instructing. So if someone wants to jump for their first time, I get to strap you to me and take you out of the airplane, which is a super fulfilling fun experience and job yeah it's like the opposite of being a dentist when everyone sees you they're so psyched to see you when everyone sees dentists they're bummed it's not that the, the work that the dentist does is bad like we the world is a much better place because we have dentists but everyone who sees them is like hi like all right we uh we're gonna go in for that filling are we all right <laughs> thanks everyone who sees you is just bummed and anxious everyone who sees you is anxious but excited exactly there are, a lot of people are overcoming a real fear when they're skydiving yeah exactly it's, i mean i mean the, the tandem thing is so easy like you, like you when you're going all you really have to do is go out with the instructor and make sure you don't knock your head back and knock them in the face like pretty much the instructor is doing all of the work yes um but a lot of people even still i mean i remember going up from my experience when you took me um and you're up in this little plane and you're going super fast and it's really cold because all the air is going in the plane and then you're you're basically sitting like being straddled by your instructor and you're both in the same parachute or i mean the same get up uh, and then the feeling that was scary and I want to know what you what part you think people get most scared in, but was when they opened the door to the plane. It's before I actually jumped out. It was when I'm like, whoa, I'm in a plane and the door is open on the plane. That's something like your mind has this little schism of like, wait, I'm in a plane and the door is open on a plane. This shouldn't be happening. Yeah, it gets real, real fast. And then you start moving up and your instructor kind of starts like nudging you forward, like just giving you a little grind in the back. And then he's like, all right, three, two, one. And you're like, and then all of a sudden you're like, woom, woom, woom. and you're, it's so like, all of a sudden you're like seeing the earth spin, which is also a, a new experience for a lot of people is, is seeing the horizon spin again and again. Exactly. Yeah. It's so, yeah. and then after that it's done and you're like, Oh my God, I just did something amazing. Yeah. But really your instructor's like, yeah, I mean, I kind of did the work, <laughs> but it's super fun. Yeah, I would say the majority of people, that's the scariest parts when the door opens. Um, for me, it was the same. Like, I was really in my head the whole way up. 
you know, and that's a big part of our job is just trying to feel that person. You're so close to someone, you can feel their body when they're scared. You know, you can feel when they start to like breathe a little more shallow, the heart rate gets rapid, the muscles get tensed. So you're trying as an instructor to make them comfortable either by like just completely talking about something to get their mind off it or some people like to be babied a little bit or you're just completely like harden up let's do this you right. know like but but you're fe- you're you're feeling people out very quickly yeah because you're trying to allow them to have the best experience possible there's such a low risk in skydiving tandem that the real risk is is that you you miss the experience because you're too in your head. Exactly. That's and then for those first few seconds of falling that were, are super cool to see, you, you're closing your eyes and you're screaming. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get everyone to be in that moment. You know, but it's tough because that's how everyone deals with fear. They either, you know, block it out or they step up to the plate and they're like super focused. Yeah. Everyone's different. Everyone deals with it different. But everyone... For the majority, big majorities, most scared when that door opens. People should skydive as um, more consistently for overcoming fear. Like if you're the type of person who's like, I don't necessarily feel capable to like go off into the woods by myself and go camping and go kill an animal, you know, skin it with my bare hands and then bring it home and feed people. And that's what makes me feel alive. Like if you're not really that into it, but you do want to rush and you do want to feel empowered, skydiving is such a good option. Oh, it, it really translates if you want it to. Um, it translates into life. Huge. It's helped me tons. Uh, I meet people and take people all the time, sometimes four or five a day, that are, you know, legitimately they're changed by the experience. Wow, I had no idea I could push myself because they're still doing it. If, I mean, when the door opens, I'm trying to get someone out the door as fast as possible so they have as little time to think about it, you know, to second-guess themselves. Yeah, you're not like, hey, you ready? Exactly. Like, yeah, no. I guess. You're like, you sure? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, none of that. We're going. And I think people really get a good um, – they get just a really good feeling about themselves of accomplishment when you actually jump out of a plane, whether you're strapped to someone or not. You can really use that to be like, oh, I did that. I faced that fear. It's huge. Yeah, that's super cool. That's super cool. Do you feel ever like you know, coming from your town, leaving, doing this, it was a little bit of like, I'm fucking doing it. Like you've gotten really good in a relatively short amount of time. You're not just doing this for recreation. And I find that most people who do push themselves to become excellent at something have something that's driving them to push it a little harder and push it a little harder and it's something that you've done so i'm i'm curious if you have that i would say i do uh yeah to a point i'm definitely a type of person that wants to progress at things um definitely want to challenge myself that's what i think i get the most uh out of uh the most that i learn about myself in those sort of situations i like doing that and um, I don't want to end up like a lot of people I, I grew up with. You know, it's just, it's a, a life I never thought I would do. But now that I'm actually involved in it, I, I love it. And I just want to do better at it, progress at it, learn to enjoy it more. Like, um, it's definitely more of a lifestyle um, type of thing to do. 
especially with wingsuit base jumping. Super expensive. There's not a lot of sponsors in it. So it's, uh, yeah, you really have to have some sort of mentality to push yourself, I think, and be critical of yourself to do it safely and have fun. And Yeah, it's one it of those sports where you're pushing yourself, but there's no room for error. And that's what makes it unique because a lot of sports you can fall off and then you get back on. Yeah, I would say that's a one of our hugest thing or biggest things that we're doing is trying to give ourselves a margin for error. There there's margin there, but it's small. It's it's very minute. So that's what you're trying to manage by being prepared, by being um ready, um knowledgeable of what's going on. So the margin is I'm going to give myself enough time to fall during this initial three or four seconds to make sure that even if I don't take a perfect exit, I will be able to recover before I hit the ground. Exactly. On some jumps, um, and it's all a process. So on some jumps, yes, you know, you're definitely giving yourself that margin as you, as you get better, obviously progressing in a sense jumping off things that are a little you start dwindling the margin down for me the way i want to do it is i want to have margin i don't want to like come up to a cliff and plan okay if i have a bad exit um no i don't want to do that but my goal is if i do have a bad one knowing like how long that's going to take me out so there's jumps out there that just aren't for me because i'm not comfortable with the margin for air and it's different for everyone. If you're more current, if you're jumping all year round, it's super easy to um, dwindle that margin down to nothing because you're very proficient at it. You know, you're you're going for it constantly. You're super comfortable. So, yeah, for me, I I try to have a margin where I can make slight mistakes and be okay. So with like flying a line, for instance, you're you're flying your wingsuit to, okay, I want to go between those trees, I want to go around that corner, and I want to go through that gully. So you've got it planned out. It's not like you just go for it. First, you're going to fly above that line as high as you can. You're going to film it, look at the trees, where everything's at, look at the topography. Okay, where are there bumps in the terrain? Where does it go up? Where does it go down? Because mountains aren't just one continuous slope. There's bumps in them where they actually come up. So you want to try to know all that, and you're going to do multiple jumps, or at least in my case, that's how I do it. I do multiple jumps and then start working my way down closer to the terrain to where I feel comfortable and to where I get that sense of speed. That's the main reason I think all of us fly terrain is to get that sense of something going past you because in a three-dimensional space, jumping out of an airplane, there's there's nothing relevant to you. There's nothing for you to pass by to say, oh, I'm moving fast. So it can feel a lot like you're just floating up there. Whereas with wingsuit base jumping, when you're going, as you get closer to these things, it gives you more of that sense. And it also, the more risk you take, the bigger reward, obviously, you get from accomplishment and doing those sort of things. But it's it's not... Um, it's not where you want to push it to past an extent. There's a point where you get close to the ground where it doesn't it doesn't seem any faster to you. It doesn't seem any more accomplished. So it's all in like finding that and doing uh, doing that safely and enjoying the speed and getting that perception 
of uh, flying this line. And then when you finish, you pull a uh, parachute or you just land? No, yeah, you pull a parachute. You pull a parachute. Yeah, okay. all wingsuit jumping, uh, you have to open a parachute. To so land. you're going um, along terrain. Sometimes you're a couple feet from the ground. And then you fly back up and pull the parachute. How does that work? Um, that's kind of uh, yeah. That's kind of how we're doing now. Is uh, basically your goal is when you're flying a line is to fly it kind of as fast as possible. Not as fast as possible, but you want speed. That's your friend. That's what gives you your margin for error. Okay, I'm low. Okay, you just kind of lift your head or tilt your body up a little bit, and you can get some flare, which is just a little bit of rise in altitude without losing too much speed. And then you fly out. You basically want to slow the wingsuit down. You don't want to just be going 160 and just dump your parachute out because then it's a slam stop and it hurts. So you kind of just pull up on the parachute, kind of like you've seen airplanes come into land, how they're steep and then they flatten out and then they kind of go nose high and flare up and slow down and the wheels touch. It's the same thing. You're going through that motion and then opening your parachute at kind of a comfortable speed where it doesn't hurt you. Gotcha. Um and then when you so just give me a sense of how high you you go then with your parachute after backup yeah um it. for me i for me it's probably like 40 50 feet is usually going back up about 40 or 50 gotcha. feet to kind of slow it gotcha, down gotcha gotcha and how many people would you say are doing this sport um too dangerously there's a huge, there's a, there's a lot of people that are doing it. Um, right now, there's a big conscious shift in um, education, and uh, it was definitely this. It's just so new. Everything's so new. So, I would say, yeah, I would say there's out of wingsuit base jumping, which has killed the most people in in la the majority of base jumping. It's been wingsuiting. So, yeah, there's a huge... The majority of it. I would say a, a lot of us are doing it the wrong way or have done it the wrong way. Okay. And... Um, How many people are in the wingsuit community? To be honest, I don't know. Um, there's all sorts of... Depends on how you look at it, who's current, who's doing it. Often, some people will go all winter and not jump, and then they'll go skydiving, get current, and go to Europe. So, um, I would say it's it's in the thousands, 3,000 maybe, Um probably somewhere around there i would say wow what a new sport like that's so cool like just three thousand dudes that's a that's a big party that's like that's a exactly you know, small concert yeah yeah it's a really small community um especially in the wingsuiting uh community it's really small everyone knows everyone and uh yeah the sport's kind of where like surfing was at the 70s they're starting to get competitions now and there's there's some sponsors that come and go, some big sponsors, and then there's some that stay around. But basically, it's kind of, it feels like it's trying to get its footing at this point. Right. And small. having money behind a sport um, ex can accelerate that progression so much more quickly. Because if you have a ton of money in it, then you can start going to crazier places. You can start getting better gear more quickly. But when you don't have that, it's like where do you, where do you get your wingsuits? Uh, me, I get mine from Squirrel. It's a company called Squirrel. Okay. And uh, there's about four other manufacturers, and basically they're people that were um, riggers is what they're called. So 
uh, in the skydiving community, they're the ones who do a lot of the sewing, a lot of the repair work, a lot of the um, in skydiving reserve uh, parachute pack jobs. And they basically, somebody at some point decided, but it's been going on forever. Everyone's had this dream of flying. So at some point, there was a couple people, uh, Patrick DeGuyardon, I think. I'm not pronouncing that correctly, probably. But he was a guy who really started the craze. And he was basically building it himself, taking nylon, cutting it, sewing it, doing it all himself, completely experimental, and then it's progressed. People have picked up kind of where he left off, and it's just got improved, improved, improved from here on. Um, wow, that that's crazy. And how many? Um, and so now you're completely confident in your suits. Yes. Yeah. They're. Um, it's always something you you don't take for granted. You take it in the skydiving environment where you have a lot of altitude, which is your so, friend gotcha so you're you're starting from a skydive jump using your wingsuit exactly you would never take a brand new suit and just jump it off a cliff because you're just reducing your margin it's just not a smart so if you wingsuit out of a plane that's completely safe for you um it's it's yeah it's not completely safe uh, but it feels very safe exactly given your experience exactly you have two parachutes when you skydive base jumping you only have one um, so you have two chances. That's huge margin. Um, skydiving also, you have the altitude, which is uh, more of a margin for you to mess up if if something's not sewn right in the suit, which we really haven't had those instances. There's not millions of wingsuits being made to where, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, the guy, The guy in that. China forgot to stitch the stitch because <laughs> exactly. he was tired that day. Exactly. So... They go through a rigorous uh, inspection process, and then um, then you jump them. But you do want to kind of be able, because every suit's like every different surfboard. You want to know how that thing reacts, and you know that they can all be very different. Yeah, you don't want to take uh, your big board out to big waves the first time necessarily. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, because um, they're all going to react differently. How many companies, when wingsuiting started, came in and then left um i don't think they're um i don't like, like what companies like is red bull in wingsuiting in making wingsuits or, no no just in sponsoring people are oh, they yes. one, they're one of the big companies right yeah they have an air force they call it the red bull air force a lot of my friends um come from a skydiving background but they also include um wingsuiting and base jumping so. okay so they'll do big exhibitions exactly is that how wingsuiters make most of their money now is with exhibitions? Um, yeah, there's a, I'd say the guys that are actually making good money at this sport are monetizing it through YouTube, um, and they got their start through exhibitions, usually, for the most part. Everyone's, there's no surefire way. You know, everyone kind of does their own thing. A lot of people just jump. They have a normal job, and they jump on the weekends or... You know, they have a jump where it only or a job where it only requires them to uh, work six months out of the year. You know, a lot of skydivers, that's kind of how they fund themselves. They become professional skydivers because it's usually seasonal in most places or you can make enough money um, within six months. And then you can have six months of cash to go and foot your bill in Europe and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think there's been too many wingsuit manufacturers that have come and gone. Gotcha. And how do you become a professional skydiver? Um, so there's requirements. So basically you learn to skydive. 
on your own, um, you need to have three years in the sport and at least 500 jumps to become a tandem instructor. And when you have those um, requirements, then you take a test and you have a probationary period. You take a bunch of people that aren't paying customers skydiving, and then you can uh, get your license and start taking people. Wow. Um, do you have any good stories of wingsuiting and having some sketchy moments? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you uh, I'll give you two. Um, sometimes, like I was saying earlier, like going to these places, some of the worst parts is the climbing. Like. N- no, not joking at all. I've been more scared hiking and climbing to an exit point than I have been jumping off it. So, like, for instance, um, two years ago, yeah, two years ago, me and a friend, Carson, you know, went to the Aguimadi for the first time in Chamonix. It's 3,900 meters. So it's a, whatever, 13,000 foot tall mountain, something like that. And it's in Chamonix. I mean, it's a huge mountain that comes up to like a, basically just this huge needle point spire that's 120 meters tall. It's all glacier underneath it for the most part till you get to the lower parts of the mountain and it gets trees and foliage on it, but it is in the mountains. And um, so we go up on the, the last cable car of the day. So this, this place you don't really have to hike. Um, normally what you do is you take a cable car and then you take another cable car. Once you get up, you take this little elevator up to the top through this little mountain. And, uh, then you go out, hop onto the platform and exit. Well, the last tram of the day, they shut the elevator down. I had no idea. I'm just following my buddies around, uh, just kind of, oh, I've seen video. They go up the elevator. No worries. You know, no hiking, no nothing. Well, we got there and, uh, had no idea, but the elevator shut down. The other two guys knew because they had been there before. And, uh, okay, guys, we're going up the Via Ferrata. And I still didn't pay any attention. I just started following them. Uh, what a Via Ferrata is is basically just iron bars usually bolted into the side of a mountain long, long time ago. They're never like stairs. It's never consistent. They're here. They're there. They're just places that are so sketchy that you need something to grab. So I had to go up the back of this mountain. Um, it's hard to really describe how exposed it is, but it's sheer granite. So it's slabs of granite that you're climbing up. And you're climbing, you're exposed by thousands and thousands of feet. There's nothing below you. You're climbing up 90 degrees of a sheer face, kind of like wall climbing, crack climbing, and then you have a little Via Ferrata handhold here and there. And you have to climb this thing for about 20 minutes. So it's a full-on experience being up there. You can't slip. You've got ice because you're way up in the mountains to deal with. Um, and you have a huge backpack on. You're, everything you're carrying is on your back, which is huge. Yeah, it's another 25 pounds. And uh, yeah, you have to go up the back of this. For a long time and stay super exposed and basically circle yourself around to the front of it and then you climb up over to the platform and you're and you're there to exit. But um, that was super sketchy experience for me. Uh, just uh, climbing like that, I'm not, you know, super uh, proficient with. 
And that and, was and how about the jumps? Have you ever had any jumps where the wind picks up on you mid-jump and you have to recorrect? Yeah, so uh, probably the most gnarly experience I had was um, uh, last, yeah, last year. I went and jumped a mountain and um, to try to explain it for everyone so they can understand, basically when you're dealing with wind on a tall mountain, there's layers of wind. Just like when you hop in the ocean, it's not the same temperature, right? It's different at different levels. So the winds are different. Um, we're going up, we're climbing up. This thing took us almost six hours to climb. So it's a full, full morning before sunrise, you start hiking. You're eating what you can. You're taking as light of provisions as you can. So it's really strenuous. It's not, um, this jump in particular wasn't a trail. It wasn't like a trail to the mountains. Um, we had to do a lot of just scrambling to get to where we needed to go. A lot of hands and knees climbing for six hours. So like the last hour and a half, we were on all fours. So super difficult. Get up to the top of a mountain. My feet are cramping. Super tired. Like if I climb back down this, I'm going to be climbing down this sketchy thing for the next six hours. So it's going to be dark and I'm going to have to do it in the dark. So you're kind of committed to a certain point. You can always turn around and go back, but we decided to jump and um, the wind was fine where we were, but there was a valley wind, which they call a foon wind. So in Europe, uh, they're, all the big mountains act like goalies basically like a channel surfing it's like where the the air like riptide exactly that's where the air is easiest to flow it stays in that funnel and the wind had built up substantially uh just below us so but we had no visual of seeing this and when we started climbing it was fine and we decided to jump we go i'm following a friend of mine and then two other friends are following me so it's a four-way exit and i had never jumped I knew about the glide. Excuse me. I knew about the glide that was uh, needed to get there, and it was doable. But with this wind, so if you can picture, we're standing on the edge of a mountain. You're looking down. You've got about 12 seconds for the rock to hit, so it's huge, straight vertical face. But the mountain basically tabletops out, so after that 12 seconds, it gets flat. So you need to maintain about two and a half to one glide ratio to get to where you're going, which is difficult. I mean, it's doable, but it's difficult. And we exit, the wind's coming up over the ridge of the mountain and spinning, just like eddies in a current. So as the wind shoots up over top, it sinks and rolls. So we're flying along this ridge line, meanwhile, not realizing that we're getting downdraft. So we're actually being pressed down into the ground while we're trying to fly. So it still feels because you're still high enough and you're far enough away from things where you don't have a good perception on things. You're just kind of eyeing where you need to go and you're kind of maintaining a sight picture. If I'm going to make that ridge, is that sort of, is that picture what I'm staring at sinking? Is it rising? If it's sinking, you're going to make it. If it's rising, you're not going to make it. If it stays still... You're going to end up right there. And, uh, yeah, we're flying. The wind's coming over, blowing, following my friend, and he's below me, so I'm good. He's flown it before. He's below me. I have altitude on him. Everything's good. We keep flying, keep flying, keep flying, and then I just notice he starts to rise and I start to sink. And 
like at that stage, I knew something was wrong and I could see the ridge coming up and I have to make this ridge to get to where I need to go and I'm not going to make it. So luckily beforehand we had planned, Hey, if you don't make it, this is where we're going to land. And I'm flying along and I notice this. So I have to basically emergency pull my parachute. So I'm going for this ridge. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Trying to see when that decision point is like, okay, I need to make a decision to open my parachute now or before. Well, when I decided to open my parachute, I waited a little longer than I should have. So basically I'm flying by treetops and then trying to go kind of through the most, um, the lowest part of this gully to make it across. And I realized I'm not going to make it. So I just full speed open my parachute. Luckily parachute opened. I had about 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds under canopy and landed. So that was a um, super scary moment for me, a big eye opener on, you know, being tired when you're jumping, noticing the wind and all that stuff. So I was super critical on myself about that situation, but it was sketchy. What does it feel like to pull your parachute going full speed? Yeah, it sucks. It hurts. It just whips you. Like, if you could imagine the worst whiplash in a car wreck, it's like that. Probably feels like getting clotheslined. Yes. It's How bad. fast are you going at that speed? At that one, I didn't, I didn't slow down because I knew I was low and I knew I needed it to open fast. And that was the important thing. So how so fast? Probably 110 miles an hour. Whoa. Yeah. You're going 110 miles an hour. Yeah. And you're throwing out a piece of fabric that's 220 square feet. That's just grabbing air. If you've ever kited at all, you know how powerful a little kite is. This thing's 220 square feet. So it's slowing you down significantly really fast. Wow. Um, how often do you have to make those kinds of decisions while you're on a flight? Um, like, it, what, like what else are you managing? Because most people don't don't have to make those decisions, obviously, because most people aren't wingsuiting. But what other little decisions have you had to make in the, pa make in the past yeah. to do it safely? Um, a lot of it is the sight picture. A lot of it is understanding if you can make it to certain places. So I've had maybe three, three close calls, um, a couple where I wasn't flying my suit at the speed I should have been as I'm crossing over a certain bit of terrain. So you should have been going faster. Yes, I should have. And I should have noticed it. But you can't you, you know, you make those decisions as you're going. So before I ever fly a line, I try to give myself a plan B. Right. Plan C if you can. Right. But so, so going too slow is one of the main dangers. That's huge. That's huge. Yes. And for beginner guys, is that a problem that they're like, oh, man, I don't want to go that fast. But you need that speed to be able to correct more quickly. Yes. And which it, is almost counterintuitive, but it makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, there's a lot about it that's counterintuitive. Not only um, does that freak people out, but the the idea of that in order to get speed, you have to keep your head down and keep an angle. So it almost feels like you're pushing the suit more vertically which in your mind saying that's toward the ground, but the faster you go to a certain extent gives you more lift. So a lot of people have trouble with managing that, you know, understanding that speeds your friend and dialing it in and people are just going too fast. They're progressing super fast. And, 
and they're not understanding that. And a lot of uh, when you're flying a wingsuit, you feel a bit of pressure in the arms, and a lot of people have the tendency to push more on the wind, which is not a good thing because it starts to lift the head up, and it doesn't give you that angle that you need to keep your speed. Right. So you would expect that you have arched back wings open, but that's not the case. Your head is down. Your butt's up. Your butt's up. And like you're almost in more of a hunched over position. Exactly. You're rolling the shoulders forward. You're trying to put the center of gravity more instead of it being at your hips. You're trying to put it up more toward your chest. So you're trying to really put the weight on the front of the suit. The aspect of hydrodynamics between wingsuiting and surfing is similar because when you're talking about needing speed to push up, when you're surfing, you need speed during the bottom turn to make it back up to the top of the lip. And if you don't have that speed during the bottom turn, your board's basically going to sink and you're not going to be able to make it back up to the top of the wave. Yeah, it's the same same exact thing. Same, Especially going that fast, the wind feels a lot like water. You can push on it. You can... Uh, use it to maneuver and all those sort of things. But yeah, if that um, bottom turn isn't executed properly, you're going to be late to where you need to be or you're not going to have the speed to where you need to be. And it's the same with wingsuiting. You really have to keep your speed up and keep yourself going. Yeah. And um, what's it been like getting into surfing? Oh, dude, I love surfing. You love it now. Yeah, I absolutely love surfing. Uh, I suck at it <laughs> very, very much, but I'm working at it. Super fun. It well, gives me a lot of the same. Uh, you've, well, you've got a good um, teacher. Ty- yeah. Tyler Fox is teaching you how to surf, and you're teaching him how to skydive. Exactly. Yeah. Trading out. Super fun. Trading out. And what's um, what have the similarities been? Uh, for me, uh, with uh, wingsuiting relating to. Yeah, surfing and skydiving. It's uh, if if any, you don't need to draw any if there aren't there. Obviously, the hydrodynamics aspect of it. Yeah, it's it's that. It's kind of uh, more or less now more just progressing at something. It's all very relatable. Like with surfing, managing your energy, um, timing, decision making, all that stuff relates. And uh, being in nature dealing with an element like in you're dealing with water all the time we're dealing with air all the time um it's just another form yeah you're going to some majestic places Uh, beautiful places if it wasn't uh if it wasn't for these sports you know like um i probably wouldn't have traveled where i've traveled it's done a lot for me and they're really uh you just have to see some of these places uh, to really believe how beautiful they are. Yeah, man. It's your it's your vehicle to see the world. Exactly. And you're flying. That's something that it's I like I hate asking the question because it's so cliche. But what the fuck does it feel like to fly? Um, I would imagine the best way I could explain it is if I would think everyone's had that dream. You've had that dream of flying, right? Like you're going by a tree, you're you're a bird in your dream. Like it's it's that. It's exactly that. It's complete and utter focused, but being in an element that doesn't that you're managing, that you're using. You're using this element to do something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. It's you can get super deep with it if you want, or you can um just say hey, it's really fun. <laughs> hey, it's really fun, but uh, yeah, when it comes down to it, it's pretty, 
pretty um, exciting while it's happening. You're you're doing a lot of different things, but when you're cruising and going over the mountains, it's yeah. If you could imagine what a bird feels, uh, it's it, it, it's exactly that. It's just flying, seeing the terrain from a different perspective, understanding what's going on in that moment. In some cases. It's super uplifting and uh, super fun and hell yeah, man. Yeah, the the point that you brought up about it's what makes uh, flying so cool close to terrain is because you can see yourself in relationship to that, as opposed to skydiving. You're not in relationship to anything exactly. Which which is just it, it's crazy to think about. Like that, it's always like what creates enjoyment in our lives is our relationship, like us in relationship to something else yeah you need it for perspective i think it's huge yeah i mean you uh like if you're you know five six but you're living with pygmies you're like i'm the tallest person ever (laughs) right it's you in relationship to them you think that you're super tall but if you grow up somewhere else you're the short person yeah exactly wow man um anything else before we wrap up um, no, no. If uh, anyone that's listening wants to come uh, skydive, come out to uh, Watsonville, Skydive Surf City, and take you for a jump and hopefully start this sort of experience that I never thought I would have that uh, maybe I can share and kind of, I just share and get someone on that path. But I basically want people to understand that anyone can do it. Um, I'm perfect proof of that. I didn't grow up around it. I had nothing to do with it. It was completely intangible. I was scared to death of it. So anyone that is willing to step outside their comfort zone and, and take an experience and, and just go with it, go with the flow a little bit, um, I would recommend everyone trying it and getting into it and enjoying it. You know, Radical. And where can people get in touch with you personally? Uh, me personally would be uh, Facebook or Instagram. It's at uh, MattRosada1, uh, both for Facebook and Instagram. Right on, man. Well, thanks for stopping by. Very generous of you, and I learned a lot. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yay! We made it through another one. Thanks so much for listening. Head over to my website, kyle.surf, to reach out with any feedback on the podcast or click the donate button where you can give just one dollar a month or more i don't really care how much you give i mean i care but at a minimum of one dollar a month you'll be entered into a monthly raffle where i give away all kinds of great gear all right once you do that get outside get in the water go skydiving have a beautiful day